This reminds me of some of the debates that were going on in the Episcopal Church around Indaba. Uh, the, the conversations, right? <laughs> the conversations. I'm triggering. I need one of these little stress balls. Like everything you say is causing me like to. to Millennium trigger. Development Goals in Indaba. <laughs> Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here as usual with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Doing great, Nick. Happy Holy Week. Happy yeah. Holy Week. Now that we're not going to talk about Holy Week on the pod this week, what are you guys doing for Holy Week? Do you have all four services on? Are you cool enough to claim that a service other than Easter morning is your favorite? We have like, my church was the, before I came and before my predecessor came 60 years ago, was the resource church for Anglo-Catholics in the region. So <laughs> you do uh, all the stuff. Yeah, no, we do everything. I remember digging through the small files when I first took the job and I found old bulletins for a, a adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. Oh my oh, goodness. Well, that's disappointing. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but do you do the night? Do you do the night watch for an hour after? No, we don't do that. Well, no, we yeah. do everything else basically. We have we have all the all, all smells, everything. <laughs> Tonight's Tenebrae. And yeah, I like wow. Tenebrae. I love Tenebrae. Yeah. I have to say, I say, um, I think Monday, Thursday, when it's done, not with an emphasis on foot washing, I mean, I don't mind foot washing, but I think when the emphasis is on the institution of the Lord's Supper, um, and then combined with a rather dramatic uh, stripping of the church, I find that I, I was surprised, I was telling someone today, um, that I was surprised the very first time as an ordained person that I had done that service, because I came at it with a little bit of contempt, kind of from a ideological theological position of kind of super low church Protestantism and was at a church in Vienna where I was forced, um, well, <laughs> because of necessity for a, a job to uh, participate in all of these various services with chasubles and whatnot on. And I was rather contemptuous in my mind, but I, having done um, celebrated communion for a number of months by that point and become accustomed to that rhythm, I found the the reflection on what would life be like without this meal that obviously was done in remembrance of Jesus, uh, which then would of course mean without him, um, what would life be like that? And what would, uh, what would, uh, how central that act of, of remembrance and worship had become in my life and then to, to remove it and to take it away and to just contemplate that was quite moving, quite, quite uh, in a way that, that still, still reverberates. Most of my Monday Thursday service sermons are a variation of a reflection on that initial um, surprise. And, um, and that remains to this day. So yes, I mean, other than Easter, uh, I think it's <laughs> safe to say that, uh, that that would, that would be at least one of my most meaningful um, Holy Week services. Well, one of the things that has been showing up in our various feeds a lot over the last week or so is a new Gallup poll showing that in 2020, only 47% of U.S. adults belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque, which is down 20 points 
from the year 2000, just 20 years ago. And it marks the first time ever that less than half of Americans claim membership in a religious organization. And the culprit, of course, is the rise of the nuns, those claiming no particular re religious affiliation. And this survey in the comments, et cetera, has only led to increased hand-wringing in certain circles about how to make the church more relevant or welcoming to the people who are either leaving or who were never joined in the first place. And it seems like, whether it's intentional or not, the place a lot of people end up is Dun, dun, da, dogmatism. It's the darn beliefs of the church and the steadfastness and sometimes firmness with which those beliefs are held that are accused of keeping people or sending people away. Can't we focus, we hear, on the things we agree on rather than the things that we don't? Mission and the pursuit and defense of truth can be seen as intention. This is a tension that is frequently remarked upon in online conversations with one side accused of compromise and the other side accused of cruelty. So gents, when did dogmatism and mission start to be thought of as intention with one another? I think it's a semi-Pelagian captivity of the church. It's when, it's when we decided that uh, becoming a Christian was a function of a person's uh, attraction or a person's being uh, individually persuaded and then choosing to um, follow Jesus, which, yes, uh, to follow Jesus when is exercising one's will, uh, but that happens as a, as a result of God's already acting upon the person through his word by grace. So how does, how does that take place? How does, how does God begin a work in a, a stone-cold dead sinner's heart? And that is um, by the power of his word. We, he gives us birth um, by the power of his word. And then the will being freed from its, impri its imprisonment, the, the person chooses to follow Jesus and enter into the church. So that's that, that kind of basic Augustinianism, I would say Paulinism, I would say, you know, Christianity um, <laughs> was, was lost to the Western church in the 50s, 60s, and 70s with the secret sensitive movement, the Crystal Palace, followed by the, all the, all the purpose-driven church stuff. Now, you know, it's, it's really, uh, how do we reach unchurched Terry and Mary, wherever they, wherever they're called, and we do that by making the church as much like the world as possible, as familiar as we can, and showing the people out there that that really, uh, Jesus. We're not so different, you and I. Yeah, we're not so different, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, Jesus is the is the supreme life coach, and if That's you can right. show them that, then then they'll, they'll stream into the church. Well, I think you could go back even further. I mean, I would go back further than Paul. Not that I would pit the two against each other, but you look at John chapter six. You know, and Jesus's um, discourse of people following him after he just fed them, and you know, then he goes into a little bit more of the we should say the radical um, costs of discipleship that would be required to follow him about his own flesh and blood. And it says, you know, this is a hard teaching. Who can handle it? And it says, even then, many of his disciples, um, obviously the ones we don't know very well, left because it was a hard teaching. And he turns to Peter and Peter says, where else am I going to go? Like that is the desperation and um, allegiance that Christians have had to have in the midst of persecution and, um, and the challenges of unbelief, you know, the persistence of unbelief since the very beginning. And so, you know, I would put it back before the 50s, 60s and 70s, although I think that's when it became acute in America and look back even at sort of the, you know, the post enlightenment kind of turn to 
to a sort of anti-supernatural, um, sort of rationalistic, subjective sort of thinking, which tried to eviscerate or didn't try to, in many cases, did eviscerate the the metaphysical and um, theological content of the Christian faith and keep somehow the the trappings of it. You know, and I've been using this analogy a lot um, recently because I think I forget where I first heard it. It's not new to me, but they talk about how you go bankrupt. You know, this analogy, you go bankrupt slowly over a long time and then all at once. You know, like there's you get your fifth, sixth credit card maxed out and you can still keep your Jaguar and your piano and you're you're still playing tennis twice a week. And then there will come a day when they show up, show up with a moving truck and start rolling your stuff out of your house. Well, I think we have been given the opportunity challenge to be living when the pianos are rolling out of the Christian church, you know, or the quote unquote Christian church that for at least a century, if not longer, you've had quote unquote Christian ministers explicitly saying we don't have to hold on to that old dogma. We don't have to constrain ourselves to that, um, you know, antiquated um, supernatural type um, kind of superstitious thinking, you know, virgin births and, and miracles and um, divine transcendence and things. And yet we can keep the, the, the sort of the, 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 the ethos of Christianity um, going strong, you know, and you have this in Germany, you have this all over the, all over the world in the 19th century in particular. And that was able to be maintained for a while because the general cultural waters had been running so strongly that most people would caught up in it and we're still kind of blithely unaware of kind of the, the massive change at the foundation. So you still had, you know, churches packed on Easter morning in 1930, 40, and 50, you know, even though perhaps people were not, excuse me, being catechized in the way that we would expect them to. Well, all of those chickens have not come home to roost, <laughs> as it were. And you've finally been given the cultural freedom to say, not only do I not believe this, but I never really believed it. And um, and in fact, it, what it will start to see is those people who hold some of the actual beliefs are now are not even our, um, we're indifferent to them, but we're actually are enemies of them. And this is what these surveys are revealing, is that the long kind of slide back towards um, or, or the long the long uh, history of people trying to have Christianity without any of the quote-unquote dogmatic assertions that it contained um, has finally proven to um, to have been a, 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 well it's, it, it hasn't worked it hasn't worked and and so we are now in the the aftermath of of what will be um, the great uh, tsunami that has that has washed through the quote-unquote quote, Christian church and uprooted um, all but the, the living plants. And, and that's what, that's what these, these surveys are revealing. I mean, Christianity was not designed to be popular. It was, <laughs> Jesus, I mean, what, what is the Holy Spirit given to the church to do? Convict the world of sin. That's right. And <laughs> righteousness and judgment. judgment. That's right. <laughs> so that, I mean, that's not, that's not someone you want to invite to a party, right? That's, that's, those are, those are things that, that aren't, that don't make for, for mass popular movements unless God, the Holy Spirit, moves people by the, the preached word. Um, so, you know, look back at at the early church, the, the apostolic and the post-apostolic church. You know, it grew, yeah, but it, the massive growth took place when the emperor becomes Christian. And then, then suddenly you have 
you know, just floods of people deciding, you know what, I, I want to follow Jesus. Um, <laughs> and so you had, and so it, but that wasn't because the, the empire was converted. That was because the empire, the emperor became <laughs> identified as a Christian. So you always had from that point on a lot of nominal Christians, a lot of people who came into the church because that's what, that's what, that was the culturally acceptable thing to do. And if you want to get ahead, you want to be, uh, you want to be part of the in crowd, you want to be part of the, the, the cultural norm, then you join the church. So, so you always then have a mixed body unless you have a church under persecution, then you have a much less mixed body. Um, so now we're kind of going through the reverse process. The, the emperor is no longer Christian. <laughs> the, 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 the empire, the, the state is far from it. The culture is, is one in which I wouldn't say Jesus himself yet is, 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 is despised, but that's just because they don't know who Jesus is. It's that's just right. because the, the right. Jesus that, that is culturally known is. Yeah. You should make a Twitter feed like Jesus quotes from Jesus out of context <laughs> and just start putting some of his, his things right. up and see what he gets canceled or, or have it, have Jesus's quotes from someone else. Like just yeah. you. <laughs> just being like, Right. Not well, only is he not despised, he's still so attract attractive and attractional that people who have jettisoned everything else about the religion that came up around Jesus uh, still want to be associated with him. And so you have people who are quote unquote in the church who would claim Jesus in some way, but who believe nothing about what he said or did. Um, including his resurrection from the dead, which we are celebrating this week, and and just want nothing other than the 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 sort of somehow amorphous connection to the name of Jesus Christ. Right. It's 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 the uh, the aura, I guess, and and and, and it's, it is a powerful faith. You can if you can claim Jesus for your side, still in our culture, that will give you um, some cred, unless again. You you actually say some of the things that Jesus said that cut against our the cultural stream. Then then of course not. But but yeah, I mean what's what's I think I'm going to use the word again. I hope no one's offended. Actually, I don't care. But but if you are offended, I I am sort of sorry. Um, this this is kind of what's behind the woke thing, right? So so you you oh. you find those aspects of Jesus's teaching that coincide with at least uh, uh, some version of of social justice or the, the secular form of social justice and you and you you, you push hard on those things because you're then you're going to attract the young people you're going to attract yeah. the people who want to know that uh jesus is as a world changer and if they join jesus's team they can be world changers too and you get you get that you the, the, the idea is you get those people back into the church and you then de-emphasize those things that jesus said that might be a little uncomfortable and voila we have we have a a, a, a church that um, young people want to join again, and um, All the kids church... are doing it these days. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, we will change the world. It's almost it's church as community organization. That's right. I I was at a church once, and we were we were approached by one of these community organizers in the Saul Alinsky mold, and trying to you know work for positive change in the community, and it was it was like all the clergy and no one else got really excited because finally they had something they could hang their hats on because they couldn't hang their hats on the resurrection because they didn't believe in it. And so all of a sudden this was a thing. And I was, 
I should uh, clarify that I was in the most liberal area of the Episcopal Church, the sort of (laughs) off the reservation. And I just remember these meetings full of excitement about now the church seemed to have a purpose. And it was all about Jesus as community organizer. Like he got his disciples around him. He got like leadership. And it was all about speaking truth to power. And I remember um, having a conversation in which I said, well, what about... When Jesus finally, and again, we're celebrating that this week, when he gets in front of Pilate, he's finally got his audience with power. And the, the gospel just could not be clearer that he does not speak. He acknowledges who he is, and then he is clearly says he has nothing more to say. He does, he does not speak truth to power. He closes his mouth and allows what the Lord has to happen to happen. And this just could not be more opposite from what a community organizing Jesus would do. Well, I mean, that's exactly right, Nick. I have a friend or I have have an experience with an older clergy person who was advised, he wanted to go into community organizing and and, uh, social service out of college. And he was actually recommended to go into the mainline church ministry because they said, well, that's where people with means and influence will be. And that will be where you will have the greatest effect. Um, And so he then went on to seminary. I mean, this is by his own attestation. Now, later on in life, he, as it was, it was referred to by others uh, pejoratively, but I thought it was great, uh, quote unquote, uh, found Jesus, um, but it actually made him a lot better, a better preacher and, and a faithful shepherd. But, but I think you're exactly right. You know, this is the roots of what the Lutherans would rail against the good Lutherans uh, against the pietist influence. You know, this is what the idea that, that there is a sort of, as Matt referenced in the beginning, a, a Pelagian or semi-Pelagian idea that now, now that we have been given access to the kingdom, we can now um, convert it by force of will or by, um, by you know, political pressure or societal enforce, uh, influence, we can, we can bring heaven to earth here somehow in, in sort of a moralistic way. And so this is why, you know, whether it's left, left or right, the pietistic influence is very much a cancer on the church because it eventually uh, does has very little to do with the transcendent and holy righteous God who exists, you know, outside of time and space and almost exclusively deals with the sins and guilt towards your neighbor. You know, this is however defined. And this is, goes all the way back again to the 19th century, probably much further. But in my way of thinking, there was a famous book by a guy named Spainer, I believe his name was, and it was Kennen via Jesu in German. It means knowing, uh, do we know Jesus? Question mark. And this was, this was over against the Wissen word, which was, um, um, knowledge of Jesus versus versus relationship with Jesus. You know, this was a big, this was like a big Lifeway Christian bookstore uh, selling back in the 19, 1840s or 50s, whenever it was. Not a fan. Was, that's right. Not a fan. Exactly. Like this was the same type book written over 150 years ago, which was basically a version of you who say you believe Jesus, but you, you're not involved in the, um, in the social activism, the way that I am, you know, how dare you, you know, whatever the case may be. And I think this can cut both ways to be fair. You know, I don't want to say that it's just, a, it just happens to be in the churches that we've spent most of our time. It's been sort of decidedly weighted towards more quote unquote progressive, um, you know, sort of worldly uh, political movements. But I think that obviously throughout church history, you can see an emphasis that takes away from 
um, the, the, the sufficiency of the word and confidence in the Holy Spirit and places more of the emphasis on the decision. You know, I've decided to follow Jesus sort of idea versus um, I once was lost, but he came and found me idea, you know? And so I think it's, it's nothing new. It just so happens to be that we are now called to be the people um, defending our sheep and um, our uh, churches against the infiltration of um you know, godless ideologies and the in the pious myths of the heathens. You know, as Paul say, you know, you who have been led astray by, by, uh, by pious myths. You know, turn back once again to, to the gospel, and that's what we're we're enjoining people to do. And by God's grace, staying fast ourselves. I remember Nick, you were talking about uh, the uh, the Jesus as community organizer. I mean, were you guys in the Episcopal Church when the millennial development goals oh, yeah. hit? That was that was another thing. I mean, I, I, when you heard my bad, I remember the million. I, almost That's every process right. meeting I went to, it was all about the Millennium Development Goals. I mean, well, I think the World just, Health. What was it? The 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 um the UN was another province of the uh, yeah. Anglican <laughs> Communion. It was like it was like Archbishop Kofi Annan, you know, speaks from on high. Um, <laughs> but that was, was, was so was wild about it was that they were so excited because they felt like they finally had something yeah. to do. Yeah, because otherwise, what do we do? Just preach and teach and bury and baptize and marry people like that? Well, no. But what are they going to preach and teach about? I mean, they, yeah. they I mean, I, I mean. I, in this diocese especially, or the, the, the Episcopal diocese that I was in, I mean, I don't, none of the clergy believed in the virgin birth and, and the part of the resurrection. And I don't think any of them could have told you what the gospel is. In a, well, we believe in resurrection, resurrection, not the resurrection, really the resurrection, right? right. Well, I prefer Spring not flowers to pin down on such details. Right. Nick. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but, um, but then you know, you're right. You, I, I think you're right about where that kind of breed of liberalism was kind of dovetails with seeker sensitive model in the sense that both of them are designed to, to try to win over the, the win over the, the uh, culture despisers of, of Christianity. And then, yeah. And again, it goes back to Schleiermacher. Yeah, I mean, you can, yeah. you can win the best you could hope for is indifference when you actually try to take away the offensive um, quote unquote dogma of Christian, of Christian theology and sort of make it palatable to unbelievers. Like the best you could hope for is indifference. And, you know, that's quite a victory right there. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's like, congratulations. You have people who don't actively despise you uh, because of what you believe. I mean, congratulations, Schleiermacher, you know, and you, um, and it's difficult to watch it happen all over again. But I guess, you know, this is what it means to be called to preach the gospel afresh in every generation is that we shouldn't be surprised that the same temptations beset the same people in the same ways. And that the same, uh, I mean, you look back at the, the New Testament, almost every letter, in particular Paul's letters are, um, there's some some function of, you know, false teachers have infiltrated you. They've, well, you know, um, trying to beguile you back to something that's not the gospel in Galatians, you know, or they have, um, uh, you know, Know, sexual immorality has has crept back in and is seducing people literally and figuratively you know and jude and all throughout the early letters and so i'm grateful for the fact that that in a certain sense the church hasn't changed because there is nothing new under the sun and nothing that is besetting us is un, unheard of to pastors down through the ages it's just this is where we are like this is what we have to be equipped we have to be aware and vigilant and prepared um, as we said a couple of weeks ago, to um, spot and um, and hunt wolves.
wolves, you know, and I think that's what we're, that's what we're doing. Because I mean, I said, I said someone the other day, uh, when we were talking, they were talking about having seen on Twitter, and they were asking me just very open mindedly, or at least there wasn't a there wasn't a defensiveness. They're like, what is the big deal about penal? What is penal substitutionary atonement? And why is that a big deal? You know, it's because I see people arguing that, you know, it's it's X, Y, or Z on online. And I, and we had a nice conversation about it. But my my fundamental uh, caution to them was like, if you hear someone really, really railing against it, you need to like back away slowly, like just back away, <laughs> you know, come talk to me, um, you know, give them my name. Like, let's like, you're not in a, you're not in a church that is trustworthy, you know, and that's, and there's, there's a list of things like that, but happens particularly around Holy week and the cross and good Friday and things there, you know, some of them come to, uh, to stark relief. And, you know, we have, um, you know, perhaps even your own life. I know I've walked down some of these trails and have been gratefully, you know, jerked back by loving, um, you know, shepherds who are older or wiser than I am, who hear me talking or hear me referencing things and saying, um, son, we need to, you know, here's a couple of other books you should read and here's where this leads. And, um, you know, thank God for them. You know, the, the shepherd, the loving shepherd with a, with a hook that grabbed me, you know, jerked me back online. And I sort of feel, you know, we're not, we're not young men, but we're not old men, but we're in this, we're in positions of, of responsibility where that's what we're, what we're enacting, you know, and, and sometimes it's, it's rather jarring to get jerked back off of a, off of a path that you think was, um, uh, you know, one that was safe and, and, and delightful for, for the eye, you know, and, and, you know, I try to be as gentle as possible and as, and as loving as possible in the midst of that. But sometimes there's a just a flat, no, like, I'm sorry, but what you're proposing is not a Christian idea. And yeah. if you persist in that, you're going to be led further away from the joy and the truth of the gospel. And so you should, you should seriously consider what I'm saying here. You know, I can't force you to, to stop, uh, reading or preaching or professing that, but I can um, I can do whatever I can to at least uh, warn those in earshot of you that you are not um, you're not a faithful in this respect that you're not a, you're not a faithful guide, and I think that's a hard thing for people to hear because it doesn't seem loving. But then I wonder, like the people that argue, like for instance, that people who are um, calling out others uh, online or however for for discipline or reprimand. Um, in as loving and non-personal way as possible are somehow somehow considered to be um, cruel or or um, or well cruel is often a word that's used and it's like do you not have children yourself like if I had a friend of mine who was kind of a harsh person who yelled and barked at my child to get out of the street you know so that my child started crying and was like scared of him but like he wasn't run over well, you know, I mean, I'd be grateful if you believed person. that a car was coming. And exactly. I think that's the idea is that ultimately underneath that, there's some skepticism about the existence of the cars. Well, and this is where you would go back to this Gallup poll. Like, do we need any more statistics of what a seeker sensitive, non-dogmatic, we're just as cool as you are, don't worry, you know, yeah. all of that weird stuff is only what fundamentalists believe sort of Christianity is going to lead. Do we know, do we see where this leads now? I mean, how many more, how much more data needs to come in to see that the, the hip uh, youth minister who doesn't know how to um, read his own Bible in English, much less Greek, um, is not the way forward for educating and discipling your children, you know, <laughs> or the idea that, you know, well, I'm sure that the culture here in South Carolina is going to just raise Christian kids because it worked for me. It's like, well, how, how many 
empty youth groups do we have to have on a Sunday night? Uh, when, you know, Mount Pleasant, for instance, there's like 400,000 people who move here every five seconds because now you can, you can telework and it's relatively inexpensive to live on the, on the coast. And so like every square foot, there's a house. And yet churches, you know, our, our church is large, but it's not proportionally as dense as it should be. And there's a reason for that. And I think most of the reason is that there are too few parents who who didn't heed the warnings of faithful shepherds who said the car is real and it's coming and it's coming for um, your kids and their their souls, for lack of a better word. And now we have these these, you know, the quote unquote millennial generation that is, um, you know, has high rates of anxiety and depression and despair and hopelessness and all sorts of um, confusion and besetting um, sort of pathologies. And people are wringing their hands saying, what is what can we do? And it's like, well, I'm not sure what we can do, but I know what we should have done and what we are now going to need to do to ensure that the future of the church is at least um, to whatever degree we can make it more secure, more equipped, and more confident than certainly these the current one um, is. And it involves being dogmatic. I mean, I didn't look up the statistics, so my apologies if they're wrong or if I'm generalizing, but it's my belief that the religions that are in fact growing just as a practical matter are the dogmatic fundamentalist ones like Islam and the Mormon church. These are the churches that are growing, and these are not churches where the doctrine is relaxed for welcoming. It is in fact the stringency that is that is attractive for somebody who wants to be involved with a group that believes something and is willing to sacrifice for that belief. This is actually what is attractive outside of the fact that Jesus actually did in fact rise from the dead and is actually true. That's ultimately why we do what we do. But just as a sort of practical matter, the stringency and faithfulness and seriousness is actually attractive in and of itself. That's right. There's a, there's a, there's a there there. Yeah. Without that, there's nothing there. Right. And, and you have some kind of uh, center of gravity. I was remembering the, 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 the letter to the Anglican clergy, the anti-racist letter that came out on Anglican Compass about, what was it? Oh, last year at some point. Um, and Before masks. That's all. That's yeah, all yeah. Well, so it now, really? It, was there it was life before? before? It was before masks. Oh, well, the, in the letter, the letter itself, I mean, it was it was couched in accusatory tones, like you know, the ACNA has given itself over to systemic racism in this way, and so we need to, and and, and the proof for that was you know stats. We don't have enough people of color in our church, and so so necessarily racism. Um, and so I remember, I remember pushing back against that on social media before I wrote an article about it too, but on social media. It'll be linked to in the comments. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) So, uh, but what what happens when you, when you, when you push back against this kind of outrageous accusation that's designed to, to dovetail with cultural trends, what's the response? Well, the response is, Oh, uh, why are you causing us so much pain? Why are you, why are you hurting us? Harming Why are us. you harming us? Right. And, and then how do you expect people looking in at us having this fight 
to want to join the church, you're chasing them away by this kind of conflict. I mean, all the while, I mean, people who are trying to just destroy the church uh, started it by the yeah, and <laughs> with, it's like the and outrageous claim they make, and then you you know you say anything true, and it's all of a sudden it's you retreat to pain, and millennials are going, right. or the Gen, Gen Z is going, we're not going to get them back. And the Apostle Paul, I mean, he had so many opportunities. I mean, you look at the church in Ephesus, you look at the church in Crete, you look at the church, you know, all the churches in Galatia that he founded. Um, he had the opportunity, and he does, to be fair, enjoin them not to in, engage in vain disputations, you know, and does, in, I mean, do not fight when you don't have to. But certainly also at the same time, every single letter is a is a prescription for how to fight this fight you're fighting. You know, Timothy, Titus, um, you know, the, the leaders in Galatia, like each and every uh, letter presupposes a conflict and makes a measured decision of what's worth fighting for and what's not, which, of course, you know, that's where we're ultimately going to disagree on, perhaps, what is offer and what isn't what is secondary and what is not but that's where you would go back to you know at least at least the reality of the discussion is is one that we have precedent for and the importance of it is one that we have seen played out in the pages of the new testament itself and so you know i am trying to and i know we are trying to have this conversation as politely as charitably with as much grace suffused as possible but when it comes down to an actual disagreement there's no way to to soft pedal or to soft uh, sugarcoat an actual disagreement um, at some point and so that seems to be the difficulty in a lot of these conversations is that well i'd rather just agree to disagree it's like well i'm not okay with that like yeah. i don't i'm not okay with agreeing to disagree like when you have when you have um you know people claiming that uh you know christian interracial marriage for instance is a form of uh, cultural supremacy and and white supremacy because it it invalidates um, or it, it somehow um, forces one of the two uh, quote unquote races again not a biblical concept to be subjugated to some sort of power differential. I mean, say no, that's that is not true. That's not a Christian thing to say, to intimate, and certainly not to preach. And if you even even come within a hundred miles of that, our radars go off and all of our little tripwires are flying because we know what wolves look, smell, and act like, and that's 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 what you are. And so, again, that's just one example uh, among many, but it's like in, you know, so I'm not going to um, apologize for that. And I would, you know, and, and I don't I don't have a particularly thick skin, you know, in terms of being called all sorts of names. Although, you know, now it's like everyone just calls everyone names all the time. So it's like they sort of lose some of their power. Uh, but, you know, at one point, it really bothered me when someone said you were mean, you know, or said you were a racist, for, for goodness sakes, or said you were a misogynist or any of these other terrible things that are levied, you know, just off offhand now, um, just by by association. And, you know, even so, I have to go home all the time um, when there's even an implication to, to, you know, talk to my trusted advisors and say, well, hey, you know, help me work through this because it actually sort of smarted a little bit when someone implied that um, that I wasn't being pastoral, you know, or that I was being cruel or harmful. And, and so, you know, I think that that's where... Um, the the devolution of our conversation has come. I think that social media has allowed for this supposed um, collegiality that doesn't actually exist to uh, manifest um, in conversations amongst people who really don't know each other, you know, and really don't actually care about each other. And so we sort of placeholder little faces of ideas that are much easier to disagree with than actual human beings that we that we know and and care about. And so I think. You know, for me, um, there's a part of me that wants to, you know, I care about the ACNA in particular, because that's the church to which we've been called. And I care about um, 
to a certain degree, it's it's future and direction, but mostly I care about the people that actually have any sort of, who have given me some authority um, over their lives and responsibility for, for shepherding and pastoring. And I care about them, you know, and they come to me and they say, well, I've been reading this, hearing this, like, what is, what's going on? Like, how do I make sense of the world that is describing me in this, that, and the other way um, as a Christian, you know, and I've got three little kids myself. And is it true that I'm, you know, that I'm what they're saying that I am? And I say, well, you know, here's what, here's what the, the gospel says. Here's what the Bible, here's how the Bible talks about you and sin and redemption and hope and resurrection, um, the resurrection, not resurrection power and, <laughs> and take heart little sheep, you know, can content yourself with the, with a, you know, sleep well tonight because we're taking care of you. And, and I think that's what, you know, when I think of dogmatism, um, again, not dogmatic people who just fight for the sake of fighting. But when I think of people who, as Paul enjoins Timothy, can hold to the mysteries of the faith with a good conscience and therefore teach and protect and equip the people the Lord has brought into their, um, into their sphere. Well, then those are the people that I trust, care about and love and sleep well knowing are on watch as opposed to people who are searching for the affirmation of an unbelieving world by slowly stripping the Christian faith of any of its, um, kind of radical, uh, distinctions. And, and so I don't want anything to do with it. This reminds me of some of the debates that were going on in the Episcopal Church around Indaba, uh, the, the conversations, right? <laughs> the conversations. Me. I'm triggering. I need one of these little stress balls. Like everything you say is causing me like to. to Millennium trigger. Development Goals. I, Indaba. Like, I have a twitch. Really? I have a twitch now. <laughs> but that back. was the whole idea. The, 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 the quote unquote, uh, okay, some genu- people who genuinely believed in the Orthodox position believed also there's nothing can we just admit that there's nothing more obviously sadly cynical than the quote-unquote indaba process yes. well, we just, I, mean, I mean just like <laughs> like there was a it was a giant open sad joke like you're gonna have to explain it a little bit for our listeners Matt. <laughs> so indaba was the idea okay so it was purportedly this this really kind of woo african thing that, that and it, it is something in africa but but not when it's co-opted by a bunch of white English people um, who want to just drink tea together and sit around and talk about with um, post-it notes. Don't right, forget right, the post-it. Right, right. Very <laughs> so, important so, part so of Indaba. So getting around, talking, and, and, the, and the idea is we can, de- we can disarm the sexuality debate if we can just get to know each other and kind of talk and learn one of those contexts, and and then if we can just be be uh, united because we just love each other, then this debate over sexuality won't divide us. Right. And so and there were some conservative people, some people who hold the orthodox position in sexuality who bought into this and who still yeah. buy into that. Because they're not they're not as cynical. I mean, they're not like they're trusting. <laughs> well, and I don't think they I think we've said this before. I think also they, they, they see this as sexual sexuality debate as offer when it's actually an essential issue that could lead people to hell. So uh, but I think that that's there are people who, who bought into that conservative people who bought into that. And their argument, I remember it was, hey, look, you know, the, the world needs to see. Uh, Anglican ministers uh, getting along and and getting together despite our differences, and that will show. Uh, this will be the, the we will see that we're Christians by how we love each, love each other. You know, we're, we're loving each other across the divide. Um, and wh- who was really being destroyed by that? The people who were being destroyed by that weren't the Christian ministers who got together and drank sherry. They were having a great time. They could they could talk about their differences and oh, this interesting point you make about sexuality. Yes, and um, <laughs> while at the same time the guy who's in the pews who has who's struggling with sexual temptation sees uh, that 
for his leaders, this is a matter of adiaphora. So I can, hey, I can go off and have sex with my same sex person. And while my Orthodox friend over here, my Orthodox minister, my Orthodox bishop might disagree with me, but hey, the, he's drinking tea and having cherry with the... Uh, with Bishop so and so, who is in he a polyamorous relationship, so hey, we must not. <laughs> they have were drinking that much of a problem. They were drinking Shostely, Shostely wine. Right, right. <laughs> the money But, but it's, the idea of church unity there is really is so destructive. Well, yeah, and I think the the problem, and I've had this conversation with with a bishop. I haven't said bishops, although um, before is it's not just the 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 sort of the guy who is seeing this kind of seemingly out of offer about human sexuality, although that's very important. That's very important. But it's it's even deeper than that because the Bible and the Christian tradition is so clear on these particular issues, like un, unequivocally clear that when you have quote unquote Christian leaders who have somehow come to a agreement that well, despite two thousand plus and if, plus years, if you go back to the, the Jews of uh, teaching uh, on these very crucial issues, despite all this, that we have we're enlightened and we've decided that they are a um, little bit more complex than perhaps you know they months would have thought. And we've, you know, the Greek word actually means this, that, or the other. And, you know, don't worry your pretty little head about what the Bible says, uh, because the bishops sitting here have agreed that it's not as important as you may once have thought it was. Well, then the trickle down from that is that none of it's as important as you may once have thought. That's what's happening. Yeah. And so that's why the, the, the tip of the spear and the point of hottest debate is around, quote unquote, human sexuality issues, not because that's the only issue out there, but because there's nothing that constrains the fallen human will more than than the the argument that you can't just do what your desires direct you to do. You just can't, you know, and you say, well, who the heck says I can't? Well, you know, a big guy, you know, God um, and, the, and the tradition, and this is why. And they say, well, is there any other way? Because that seems to be quite, uh, quite uh, prohibiting. And so when you have the quote unquote itching ears being itched by your actual quote unquote Christian leaders, well, then don't be surprised if they start saying, well, what else, what else yeah. is kind of adiaphora, you know, house of virgin birth. Yeah. And that's why I have absolutely no time for these people who say that we're emphasizing one particular issue over another. They're all parts of a whole, you know, who was it? Um, Michael Polanyi was the philosopher who talked about, um, what do you call it, uh, focal subsidiary integration, you know, this this term. And basically it meant the idea that like, that there was, the, the way that I've described it is picture a, um, a monument lit from the ground, right? With like a succession of lights surrounding it, you know? So these would be the, the, the focal points that were underneath the thing that you were upholding. So let's say you're upholding the faith, right? The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Then all of these seemingly non-connected issues, human sexual sexuality, uh, the supernatural, the inerrancy of scripture, you know, go down the list. They seem to be individual aspects that could be argued or jettisoned or believed independently, but they're actually all part of a whole that is, that are brought together to illuminate this one great truth. Okay. Now that might've been too, too, too far afield, but the point is, is that when you lose one, you begin to lose all of them. And that's why it's it's not a, you know, we're picking and choosing various aspects. Like if people were coming at, for instance, the argument that that somehow adultery was not a constitutive Christian moral position, we'd fight that just as strongly. I mean, that's what the whole, the whole pornographic industry um, is essentially one large transgression of, of the seventh commandment. Like that's all it is, you know? I mean, the whole online betting and gambling world is, is thou shalt not 
not steal or that. I mean, like the whole, that that no one, no Christian people happen to be at the moment uh, trying to make an argument that from a Christian perspective that we should put in other um, statues of gods in our Christian worship. But if they did, we would be just as vehement and just as as, um, resolute against that. And that's where the dogmatism, quote unquote, actually becomes missional. Because Mm -hmm. when you lose dogma, when you when you lose actual, uh, which is just concrete uh, ideas that actually touch places where people live, you know, who are you? Are you a man or a woman? Or what are your, where are your desires fallen and where should they be directed? Like, this is what affects everyone, whether you live in New Zealand or Canada, um, you know, or, or from Africa to, to, to Chile, it doesn't matter. And so when the dogma actually touches where people live and begins to give them a hope, which is a freedom from slavery to sin, i.e. their own base desires, well, then no wonder they start to find some some healing and hope in that, you know? And so so when you have, I mean, look at like Jordan Peterson types or or just self-help, like like uh, uh, Joe Rogan, you know, people that, that aren't necessarily, well, I think it's safe to say they're not necessarily Christian apologists, but they are offering something of a dogmatic take on what it means to be a human being, you know, um, what it means, like how, how you should comport your life, how you should. And, and people are listening to like six, seven hour long podcasts from these guys on a daily basis, you know, and then you have quote unquote Christian clergy who say like anything more than, you know, the mind can endure, the mind can absorb but the bottom can endure, you know, which is what you'll hear. And there's sort of a knowing smile on the way to an Indaba, uh, 12 minute Indaba, which is a model for how long the sermon should be. And you say, well, no wonder, no wonder there's less than 50% of the people that are claiming to be in a church if you were in fact the leaders of that church. And so, you know, we're, we're doing our best to halt the slide, but at the very least uh, protect those who have been, um, who have somehow survived the, the cultural uh, tsunami that has gone through the church and do our best to equip and, and support them in their, in their what promises to be a much more difficult witness than, than perhaps they ever imagined. You, know, you, you wonder about the things that Augustine and Pelagius had in common. They both probably had a, a pretty orthodox understanding of the Trinity. They both probably, I think, I think Pelagius did have a fairly orthodox understanding of the atonement, that even though he believed that you didn't, if you, if you played your cards right, you wouldn't need it. But, but if you did need it, you had the, you had the atonement. Um, you could fly back to, um, if you send, I mean, you can just imagine the Indaba people today going back and saying, Hey, you know, come on guys, why don't we focus on what we agree on? Well, they did this. They literally did this. Didn't the Episcopal church try to rejuvenate Pelagius <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> that was a diocese of Atlanta or something like that right, right. but I mean pretty much every major controversy if you go back I mean the, the, it arose because someone challenged challenged orthodoxy at a certain point and it's it's at that point therefore where you have to fight them that's right and if you don't fight them at that point it does no good to play around with other things you don't disagree about I mean we can well, talk this is where yeah, and this is where I've been encouraged that like this is not an intra-Anglican squabble. You know, this isn't like we're all arguing about which is the, you know, which feast day we should observe uh, if we're like the, the church. The you know, um, I wouldn't have a lot of time for that honestly. Like I've always been kind of, um, you know, I've been grateful for the the breadth of the Anglican library that we could have with respect to trusted advisors. You know, and so. I've been encouraged by the fact that we are not only not alone, but there have been um, worldwide 
church kind of response to this one way or the other, all of these great issues, human identity, um, you know, what constitutes quote unquote justice, equity, these, these, all these conversations are parts of a whole that down the line through every denomination across all sorts of various sacramental theologies and baptismal theologies and things have, um, are, are starting to, to clarify where it is that people consider this to be an adiaphora or not, where, you know, this is, Paul is writing his, his letter. I mean, can you imagine some of the people in Galatia were like, are you kidding me? Like, this is not that big a deal. Literally not that big a deal. Like we all agree on who Jesus was. Yeah. Like, and he says, he even says in, in chapter two, you know, we know we're Gentile, we're, we're not Gentile sinners. We're justified by faith and not Gentile sinners. He's writing to fellow Christians. And yet he says, who has bewitched you? You know, what is happening here? And I feel that I don't feel like I trust that in the, um, the wisdom, well, of the church universal, uh, there will be a further clarifying and a further um, kind of winnowing out of these uh, two positions to circumcise or not. And, you know, on the other side of this, I hope it's, I hope it's um, as peaceful a divide as can be maintained, but it won't be surprising to me that, you know, a year, two years, three, five, 10, however long it takes to finally work this out is if we've seen a real reshuffling and a reordering of, um, of sort of Christian, uh, conviction and witness across denominational lines that we may never have, have even imagined, you know, five, 10 years ago. And for that, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful because I uh, have my own distinctives as we do and have my own, uh, you know, sort of my own piety that is, that is fed and, and works within the Anglican tradition, but it certainly isn't limited to that, nor do I have any ultimate allegiance to, um, to the Anglican way of worship, other than the fact that it holds the gospel first and foremost in front of me on a weekly basis. And so to the extent that other churches do it differently, but yet still agree on what that gospel is, well, then we'll be brothers and sisters in arms until the Lord comes back. And so I, I, I think that, that we'll continue to talk about this, but for my sake, Matt, and I'm give you the last word since you are the um, most, um, combative and um, dogmatic and harmful, cruel person on this, uh, <laughs> on this, on this uh, podcast. Um, but I think that, you know, that there's, there's so much now I've been doing this for 20. I mean, since I was in college, I've been accused of being dogmatic and, and unhurt and cruel and to, to whatever, to be missional. And so I've got some, some water under the bridge now and enough more than enough, um, not anecdotal, but firsthand experience of people who have basically come and said, thank you. Um, thank you. And again, that's not a prideful statement. It's just something that is really near and dear. I've got a drawer, you know, I have a, I have a drawer full of enough of not thank you notes too, but I have enough to just simply say thank you um, for leading me, holding me fast, protecting me and encouraging and equipping me in, in a variety of ways that I'm not really worried about being called too dogmatic or too, uh, I know I'm not a cruel person and I know I'm not, I'm not intending to harm anyone. And um, as a pastor, I also know what it's like to see a sheep in need of protection. And that's actually more important to me than, than whatever else could be said. Uh, yeah. Okay. Last word, the, the extent to which, the extent to which our dogma is consistent with what's revealed in scripture is the extent to which our dogma is really just about who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, to know, to have true dogma is to have a true grasp and uh, comprehension of Christ as he's revealed himself. And, and so then if that's, since that's the case, we're not just talking about, you know, 
words written on paper. We're talking about a person and, and the person in whom we find salvation. So, so, so it, it you know, being overly, I don't know that you can be overly concerned about dogma because he, Christ is the one who has revealed the dogmas that we're, that we're, that we're focusing on. So in terms of you, if you, if you, if you, if people who are saying, let's, let's not focus so much on dogma, let's focus on, on mission are, are actually leading people away from the one they say they're serving in the mission. It, it doesn't work that way. He, he is a person who reveals himself in words that we have taken and the, and that we have believed. And to the extent that those things that he's revealed are disbelieved, well, we have a false God or a false Christ. So it's, it's about, it's about, it really is about a personal relationship with Jesus, this dogma. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, we've called it the last word, so let's make it the last word. That's going to be all the time we have this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to keep the conversation going, please be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks, as always, to Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon. We wish you a blessed Holy Week. We will be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 